Good morning. I'm Pastor Ruth. I'm bringing the heavy hitters with me this morning. I had so many, I thought I needed a little stool. Uh, We are completing our series this week, Ephesians Found, Recovering Our True Identity in Christ. And we're going to do a sermon old school today. No slides, no outline. It was a holiday week from Wednesday on. The office was closed. So we're going to just try it old school and see how we do. Fourth of July. On the Fourth of July, I have to say that I woke up to the sound of celebration. Uh, I was asleep well before 10 o'clock. And what immediately came to my mind was some words from our national anthem, the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air. And then I went right back to sleep. (laughs) Because, of course, for me, the sounds of July 4th are celebration, happy sounds, because I've never actually experienced real rockets, I've never experienced real bombs, and I've never even experienced real gunfire in a fight. And I would say that probably few of us have. I'm sure we have a few veterans who have experienced war. We probably have a few people who grew up in communities where there is a lot of regular gunfire, and we may have a few people from other countries who have experienced war and battle. But for the rest of us, the word battle is usually about something quieter or maybe as deadly as war, but um, a little quieter, like we talk about battling cancer or battling depression or perhaps a battle for custody of children. And apparently, some of you are involved in a battle for the galaxy. Um, That I have not done that game myself, but I understand it's, it's it's a thing that's going on, and I'm guessing it's pretty noisy. I think the battle for the galaxy is actually a better size representative of the kind of battle that we're talking about today and that Paul warns about in the concluding words of his letter. Because the Bible talks a lot about a spiritual battle that is going on behind the scenes. We hear about it from Daniel in chapter 10. We hear about it from Peter. We hear about it from John. In fact, the whole book of Revelation could be pretty much a description of a spiritual battle. James talks about it in chapters 3 and 4. There is a spiritual battle going on, and the Bible describes it as a creature, a created being, who has been given the title Satan, which means adversary, or devil, which means the accuser or the slanderer. This creature is leading a rebellion, against the rule of God in the cosmos. And so when we throw allegiance to God by accepting his forgiveness and by coming under his rule, we in fact are declaring ourselves enemies of God's enemy. And the devil does not easily concede ground. So Paul warns the Ephesians and he warns us that we are in for an intimate hand-to-hand fight with God's enemy, as Martin Luther wrote in his song, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. We, in fact, are not equal. We are not up to the task of battling what Paul calls the rulers, the authorities, the powers, and the dominions of evil. But it's interesting that Paul used those exact four words in another place. At the beginning of his letter, if you have your Bible, turn back to Ephesians 1. And in his opening prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 1, 
He prays that the people's eyes will be open to the incomparably great power of Christ, verse 19. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above, listen, all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Christ is sitting in authority, far above all authority, all other rulers, all other powers and dominions. And like bookends on this letter, Paul reminds them, having reassured them that Christ is, is over all of that, that all of that has been put under his authority, he now at the end of his letter warns us that though the war is won, each forward movement, each time we walk into a new space of maturity, every step that we take to bring more of God's love to the world, more of God's light, more restoration of God's initial plan for the world and for our lives, every step will be contested. This is a tension that we live in. And John Stott puts it very beautifully. He says, for though the devil has been defeated, he has not yet conceded defeat. This is the reason for the tension we feel in both our theology and in our experience. On the one hand, we are alive, seated, and reigning with Christ, as we have just seen, with even the principalities and powers of evil placed by God under Jesus' feet and therefore our feet. And on the other hand, we are warned also in Ephesians, that these same spiritual forces have set themselves in opposition to us and that we have no hope of standing against them unless we stand in the Lord's strength clad in his armor. This tension is part of the Christian dilemma between the already and the not yet. Already the kingdom of God has been inaugurated and is advancing, and yet it it has yet to be consummated. Already not yet. That's the tension we live in. Our enemy defeated but not eliminated. So this morning we're going to talk about the ways that God does three things. He prepares us for the battle, he protects us in the fight, and he powers us to stay in the fight all the way to the finish. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we are so grateful for the way that you meet us. Thank you for the fact that your spirit will be touching us and speaking to us words of life, words of hope, words of encouragement. I pray today that this word about the fight to come will be one that lifts us up, lifts us up to you in gratitude for the ways that you will meet us and care for us in the fight. In Christ's name, amen. There's a small old commentary on Ephesians uh, written by Watchman Nee called Sit, Walk, Stand. And I think that's a great summary as we think back over what Paul has been writing in this letter. It's a helpful way to remember it. Because first we heard about God's great plan, that he wants to bring everything together, everything on heaven, in heaven, everything on earth, together, united under Christ. And that Christ sits in heaven, that he sits in heaven because his work is done, it is finished, and that we are uh, seated there with him. We sit 
with Christ in heaven, and we are filled with the very life of Christ, so that as Richard said in the first of the Ephesian studies, we become people of rest, confidence, and hope right in the midst of the storms and the fog of life. And then in the middle of the letter, Paul talked about us needing to walk worthy of the calling we have as the beloved, forgiven children of the light. And he laid out transformation that ought to occur in our character, transformation that ought to occur in our behavior, and transformation that ought to occur in our relationships. Because we sit with Christ, we walk into this new life as Christians or Christ's ones, little Christs in the world. And now Paul concludes his letter by preparing us to stand, to stand against the opposition that will be thrown at us. Uh, I played basketball, and this applies, I guess, to pretty much any sport, but I played basketball in high school and college and spent hundreds of hours practicing layups and doing shooting drills. But if that were all the practice that we did, our team would have always been defeated. (laughs) Because, of course, in a game there is opposition. In basketball, there are no free layups in games. There is opposition to every shot, to every pass, and every move towards the basket. And it's true also in our spiritual life. There is no uncontested layup in the spiritual life. Paul wants us to be prepared for the opposition. So let's begin with that question, how does God prepare us? My husband and I have some hiking friends. We haven't gone for a while, but we love hiking with Ranger Dave and Debbie. Now, Dave is not a real ranger, but we call him that because when he shows up, even if it's just a day hike, he will have an enormous pack because Dave will have a first aid kit. He'll have water for about four people, and often on our hikes, we have run into people who needed extra water. He'll have extra food probably several days' worth, He'll have a compass, a map. He'll have some kind of flare or emergency signal. He'll have sunscreen. He'll have the waterproof matches. He'll have extra clothes, and he will always have emergency shelter should we have to spend the night somewhere. Dave's, he's, he's climbed Mount Rainier several times, and his long experience means that he, has, he can anticipate pretty much what problems could possibly happen, and he comes prepared. And that's what God does. God has long experience with his enemy, and he anticipates by forewarning us of the devil's schemes, and he carries the pack with everything we're going to need. The schemes of Satan are really easy to spot because basically God's enemy is against everything that God is for. So if we know God is for this unity under Christ, this tearing down of barriers between people, this building up of this diverse but united body of Christ on earth. If Christ and God are for us becoming like Christ, flourishing in love and generosity and justice and kindness, and wanting us to become life bringers and light bringers everywhere we go, then the adversary does the opposite. He is anti-love. He is behind all the forces that try to pull us apart, pull us apart individually, pull our families apart, pull our churches apart. 
He is the builder of barriers and hostility and suspicion and fear, and he wants to dismember the body of Christ, weakening it through lack of nourishment, paralyzing it with falseness, sickening it with gossip and resentment. Wherever we see anti-love at work behind it, whether it's a person or an institution or a neighborhood, behind that is the spirit of, of God's enemy, Satan. I recently had the opportunity to go to a Richard Foster conference, and for those of you who might not have been around 40 years ago, Richard Foster wrote this classic book, Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth, 40 years ago. And so they were celebrating that, and and Richard is kind of stepping down from public life. But it was really interesting to hear him talk about the next 40 years and the challenges ahead. And he said the primary spiritual problem in the contemporary culture is distraction. Now, we did a survey a couple of years ago at Bethany North, and you responded and told us, told, told our community what you think the barriers to spiritual growth are. Can you guess what, what do you think are the barriers to spiritual growth in your life? Besides distraction. Anybody? Time? Social media? Any others? Sorry? I didn't hear that one. Well, you got it on the first one. Time. Busyness. You said that in our community, the number one barrier to your spiritual health is busyness, which I think is another word for distraction. Whatever keeps you from God is not neutral. I'm going to say it's demonic. Busyness and distraction are schemes of the devil. Whatever keeps you from enjoying intimacy, joy, and love with God and with the people around you is a scheme of the devil, whether it's your job, your kid's schedule, your devices, whatever seeks to detach you from that which will bring you life and joy and hope is a scheme of the devil. Another of his best schemes, Paul points out, is to have flesh and blood people attack flesh and blood people. How much time have you and I spent fighting the people in our homes at work, and in our communities. But Paul says the struggle is much deeper. And I want to say this especially to those of you who are in the fight in, in, for institutions and for powers, and those of you who are desiring to stand up to evil in the world where you see it. Especially you need to remember to drink deeply at the well of Christ's care for you. It's easy to be consumed by a fight, and to lose connection with the very light and love that you are seeking to carry to a dark place. Listen to that again. It's easy to be consumed, so consumed by a fight, that you lose connection with the very light and love that you are seeking to bring to a dark place. 
Many schemes of the devil are exposed in Scott Peck's book, People of the Lie. I think it's an old one, but I encourage you to read it. And then C.S. Lewis' almost 80-year-old book, Screw Tape Letters, is a great way to be faced with some of, some of what um, the schemes of the devil look like. In 1942, Lewis wrote this, The greatest evil is not now done in these sordid dens of crime that Dickens loves to paint. It's not done in concentration camps and labor camps, but it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the office of a thoroughly nasty business concern. Sounds pretty... That was 1942. (laughs) Sounds pretty contemporary. God prepares us for the fight by exposing the schemes of Satan to us and by carrying the pack with everything we need. So the second question is, how are we protected in this fight? I think about Paul as a preacher, like many of us, we are always looking for illustrations in life, and Paul had to only look at the end of his arm to find this great illustration of God's protection. Maybe if he was a gardener, it would have been gardening implements, or maybe if he was a doctor, it would have been the immune system diagram, but Paul was a prisoner, and at the end of his arm was a Roman soldier, and so we have this much-loved Roman armor illustration. I think of it as another wardrobe change. You know, in chapter 4, Paul encourages us to change our wardrobe, to put on Christ, his attitudes, and his behavior. And in a sense, chapter 6 is putting on these, these spiritual battle clothes that is another way of describing how we put on Christ. Verse 14 in chapter 6. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Jesus is the belt of truth. That is, he protects our core from the lies of the enemy. Jesus spoke truth, and he lived truth. And as we put him on, we become people who speak the truth in love. It is time with Christ and listening to the truth of Christ's words that renews our minds. And as 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, we are given the very mind of Christ. I think, too, about Jesus in his battles. Think of how the kingdom of evil threw everything they had at Jesus, right, trying to defeat him. And Jesus felt it was necessary to memorize scripture. How much more must we have the truth in us, available to us? That, in a sense, is buckling the belt on. In fact, if you, read, if you look at that Uh, section of scripture, there's all these active verbs that we are to put on, that we are to stand firm, that we are to take up. There are things that we play a part in, and sometimes we are too passive as Christians, thinking God does it all. And in a sense, he does. All the power, all the transformation, God does. But we have to show up. We have to place ourselves before God so that he can do that work in us. 
So Jesus also protects us from the accusations of the devil. He's our breastplate, protecting our hearts with his righteousness. The devil loves to accuse us, to show us our sin and our weakness. Nothing like preaching on this to have a week like that. Romans 8 tells us there is no condemnation for us because we are sitting with Jesus. We are in Jesus, and Jesus has covered us entirely with his forgiveness. Jesus has, gives us protection from being blown around. In a sense, his peace is that which grounds us. The Roman sh- soldiers had uh, footwear that was kind of like soccer cleats. It was something that provided stable footing. And that is what Jesus gives us. He gives us footing when the day of evil, did you see that in the passage? He says, there's a day of evil coming. Do you know what a day of evil is? Well, it's a perfect storm that Satan customizes just for you. So if you're an introvert like me, it means a day when you don't have one minute to yourself If you're an extrovert, it means it's several days where you never get to talk to anybody. (laughs) It's a day when you argue with someone you love or you're betrayed by someone you love. It's a day that your job is just killing you. It's a day when your sleep was interrupted the night before. The day of evil is a day specifically designed for you, and Paul warns it's coming. It's a day when you will be tempted to things you would never believe you are capable of as you're sitting here on Sunday morning, a day when your company or your neighborhood or your organization moves in a direction, makes a decision, or affects a policy that you never believed was possible. Ron Julian writes, in the midst of struggle and trial, we must decide whether we really believe what we say we do and act on that belief. If we are truly believers, our beliefs will ultimately make their way into our actions. Most of the commands in the New Testament are not instructions for living a more fulfilling life, but tests of our discipleship. Tests of our discipleship. They are commands for me to persevere in believing the gospel, even when life pressures me to abandon the faith. At stake in how I live my life is not whether or not I have a more or less fulfilling experience as a Christian, but whether in spite of my weakness and sin, I persevere in being a disciple of Jesus and find eternal life. Someone has said that diamonds are just chunks of coal that stuck to their jobs. And that's what God is doing with us. He's making us into diamonds. You and I are called to stand our ground. And after we have done everything, Paul says, to stand. Jesus is also our protection from despair. He's the shield of faith. The doubts about God's love, doubts and lies about ourselves, are all answered in the face of Jesus. When we look to the cross, we see God's naked and vulnerable love. There, God showed us how evil is overcome. Evil is overcome with good. A weapon the enemy could never have imagined. The Roman shields that they're talking about are not the little ones we see in movies, but really large, wooden, leather-covered usually, and they often soak them in water. And they were made to interlock with the, the shields of the other soldiers. They didn't stand alone defending themselves, but stood together with the shields locked in front and overhead, back to back, so that no arrows could penetrate. 
It's a great picture of the fact that sometimes in our pain and in our suffering, we don't have the strength to hold our own shield. And then it's the faith of others in the body of Christ that protects us and carries us to safety. And sometimes it's our faith shield that's needed to defend those of the faith of others around us. Our final protection is protection from death. Jesus is our helmet of salvation. As Hebrews 2.14 says, By his death, Jesus destroyed him who holds the power of death. Because that was kind of Satan's trump card, fear of death. He enslaved people with the fear of death. But Paul says we are free of that fear. In Romans 14, he says, Now that Christ has risen, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are given just one offensive weapon to take territory back from the enemy, and that's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's not just this, the written Word of God. More importantly, or at least as important, is the living Word of God. I know some people who um, cook for a family and they amazingly meet the needs of all the individuals in the family. So there's a ve- one's a vegetarian, one's wheat-free, one's dairy-free. And I think that that's sort of the way God feeds us his word. You might be reading Ephesians for the third time or the first time or the 23rd time, but God brings it alive each time in just the way you need. One this morning will hear a word of encouragement. Another will be convicted. Another will have an insight into a circumstance in their life. So we have been prepared by Jesus for the battle, and we are protected fully by the armor of Christ. A mighty fortress goes on to say, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that might be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. So the third question is about power. Where are we getting power for the fight? And in our chapter at verse 18, my Bible is breaking, so I'm trying to be really gentle with the pages. Um, Verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. There's the power. Spirit-powered prayer is the gas for the engine. I I say spirit-powered prayer because I think for many of us, prayer has become very anemic, even narcissistic, and crisis-driven. Paul's final words describe a completely different kind of prayer, spirit prayer, the kind of prayer that's needed to defeat the powers of evil. That is prayer at all times, prayer of all kinds, prayer with all perseverance, and prayer for all the saints. Prayer at all times is not a constant flow of words, but what Brother Lawrence calls practicing the presence of God, or what the 12 steps call conscious contact with God. Prayer is opening ourselves to awareness of God everywhere in everything. Bidden or unbidden, God is present. We must see and hear God in order to join our prayers to what God is already doing. 
Paul also encourages us to throw open the door to all kinds of prayer. There's asking prayer and praising prayer and weeping prayer and longing prayer and fuming prayer. And perhaps most, of all, most important of all is the prayer of listening. Prayer, uh, pray the prayers here in Ephesians. There's some wonderful prayers. Put in the names of the people you are praying for. Pray the pr- many beautiful, wonderful prayers have been written from others. Use those prayers to, to stimulate your own prayer life. As someone wisely said, pray as you can, not as you can't. So we pray at all times, all kinds of prayer, with all perseverance. Not that we bully God by asking so much, but the truth is that if we persevere in prayer, we may be changed. Richard Foster says, prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. He writes, if we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer. The closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we see our need and the more we desire to be conformed to Christ. William Blake tells us our task in life is to learn to bear God's beams of love. How often we have fashioned cloaks of evasion, beam-proof shelters, in order to elude our eternal lover. But when we pray, God slowly and graciously reveals to us our evasive actions and sets us free from them. All times, all kinds, all perseverance, praying for all the saints. Desmond Tutu wrote about the freedom march that they made on the South African Parliament in 1988, and he talks about the important role that prayer prayer played in that event. He said, there's something powerful in the fact that people are praying for you. You see, we are representatives of a great army around the world. On the march, we were one at a very deep level. We were agreed on that this thing, apathy, was evil. We were agreed about what we were going to do, whatever the consequences. I was scared. I was sitting in the cathedral before the march, and we were praying, and you could hear the butterflies in my tummy. Of course, we didn't know how the police were going to react. In fact, at the time that they stopped us and we knelt, this man beckoned to the police behind him, and I said, well we're really getting it now. I mean, we're getting the whips and the dogs and we're just going to have to brave it out. One was sort of utterly scared. I never imagined Desmond Tutu afraid. I never imagined the Apostle Paul afraid, and yet Paul asks for prayer here, not to get out of prison, but prayer that he would be fearless in proclaiming the gospel. Desmond Tutu believed that the body around the world was standing with him in prayer. I'm excited that there's a group at Bethany North, some folks who are gathering weekly to pray on Monday mornings at One Cup with the desire to hear God, with a desire to discern the movement of God in our community, with a desire to be transformed. I'd invite all of you to join that adventure on Mondays at 7 a.m., Come and learn to pray. Jesus' disciples had to learn to pray. I'm so grateful that the fully human Jesus and the fully human Paul did not waver but prayed their way 
on the path of faith all the way to the finish. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So this morning I want to ask you to do two things. First of all, just to ask, are you in the game? If so, you're experiencing opposition. Not so much if you're on the bench. But if you're in the game... If you're not in the game, I'd ask you to get in the game. (laughs) Get in the game this week. Two ways I want you to respond to this. One is, I want you to listen to the book of Ephesians. It's a a 20-minute podcast. I'm sure many of you listen to dozens of podcasts every week. Please listen to the book of Ephesians read to you at least once this week. There's lots of free Bible apps for your phone. Get one. It is powerful to hear the word of God spoken, and it will give God an opportunity to speak to you from his word. And secondly, in response to Satan's scheme of distraction and busyness, I want to encourage you to a simple rhythm that Richard Foster suggests can free us from the crippling grip of distraction and technological gluttony. Take 30 minutes a day away from technology Sit quietly with a cup of coffee or tea and say the words of Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Then be still. No writing. No talking. Jesus is your protection. He's your preparation. He's your power for the life God created you for. Will you join me in reestablishing a habit this summer of listening daily for the voice of God? Pick a verse, another verse. Read it. Then sit quietly with God. I'm going to ask you today, if you have a bulletin, to right now write down a place and a time that you can meet with God in this simple way, connecting with God on a daily basis this week. As we close today, I want you to think about how you can connect with God who longs to connect with you so that you can live the life for which you were created. Amen. I'm going to close in prayer. I ask the God of our Master Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what he's calling you to do, so that you can grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him endless energy, boundless strength. I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him with both feet planted firmly, firmly on love 
that you'll be able to take in with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love for you. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full of the fullness of God. Amen.